about a year and a half ago, I was talking with my staff friend, Serene, and she was telling me about this school out in Imperial Valley. And in San Diego, we don't think about that campus because it's outside of San Diego. And the next region over is Arizona, so they're not thinking about it. So really, it's not on InterVarsity's radar at all, like the no man's land of InterVarsity. And so I kept thinking about it once she planted the idea in my head. I was kept wondering who was going to reach these students, who was going to share the gospel with them. I went to this church prayer meeting, and a woman there gave me this vision of new things happening and I knew that she was talking about Imperial Valley College and so I realized I had to go out there and pray and so I got my stuff and I went When I got into the car that night, I thought the drive was going to be 45 minutes. Turns out it was two hours to Imperial Valley College. I kept thinking it was so crazy that I was going to go two hours in the middle of the night just to pray, but I reminded myself that God had asked me to go out there and I knew that I needed to step through this door. The first time I came to campus to pray, God gave me a heart for this place. The second time I came, I realized there was already a Christian club meeting here. And honestly, I was pretty skeptical. I thought that maybe they would be inward focused and not really open to an outside perspective. So I prayed. I prayed that there would be students that were missional and already doing outreach on campus, that there would be students that could do it on their own without me since it was a two hour drive away. The third time I came, I was here to meet Elijah, the Christian club president. So after I met Chizu, she taught us a little bit more uh, about the direction uh, that InterVarsity was going. We were learning leadership and we were learning how we can reach out to different areas on our campus and how there's more communities to be reached out to on our campus. And just blew my mind how what we were doing here wasn't just here, but it was going on in so many other campuses around the United States. They want people to know Jesus. They want them to experience healing and wholeness in a way that they can't experience it on their own. And they are convinced that God is the way to experience this freedom that they know and they want to see others know that too and they have been praying for someone to come and help them because some of them were going to be transferring out of the community college. I mean really the thing that I do is I give them some ideas and then they run with it. They know their context way better than I know their context. It's been cool to see them really interact um, with each other but also with God and doing the things that they feel like God's putting on their hearts, not the things that I feel like God should be doing in them. Two years ago, I was part of the Imperial Valley College uh, Chosen Generation Club, and I wanted to continue to do that, but I transferred to San Diego State Imperial Valley campus. 
In Imperial Valley, there's the community college, and then there's a four-year university that's an extension campus of San Diego State, and students go to both campuses. And one day I was really um, thinking about it, and I talked to Chisu, and she really encouraged me and my other friend. After that, she talked to me. I came into this building, and I was sitting down doing my own business when I realized that people that were in the same building, we were all Christians, so we started to talk about doing something for our campus. So we agree on coming every Tuesday at 3 and um, praying for our school. Hey guys, if we get in a circle and pray for the campus. Two weeks ago was the first time prayer part ever happened on this stage. So any room, any place on campus that we could actually bring prayer to the campus is, is a first. And just having a lasting impact on this campus. I mean, this campus is lost. People need prayer. I didn't know that there was going to be two, possibly, chapter plants happening because of that one prayer night. And it was just one door opening after the other, stepping through the one door. I would have never thought of myself as a chapter planter. My full-time job is an urban project director, which I love. Um, but even now, I mean, I go out to Imperial Valley probably at the most twice a month. And that doesn't, does that count? Um, God's been amazing in the midst of the whole thing. I've loved what he's doing. I love that I get to be a part of it. And it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like being a part of what God's already doing, I get to participate in that. I love that it brings him glory. Well, good morning. Uh, I love that video. Uh, think about how our hearts are so burdened for campuses across the country where there is no witnessing community. And so then we start making plans. We make plans to visit places like Imperial Valley. And then we realize God is already at work there, even before we made those plans. Uh, so that's a, just a joy to see that as a living example of that. Uh, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your work on campuses across the country where uh, we have no staff, we have no presence. Uh, where you're working in students' hearts, where there are students who find each other and begin praying for their campus. Uh, we pray that you would continue to sustain them and uh, resource them, Lord, and give us the opportunity to have those connections, those divine appointments like Chizu had uh, just unexpectedly running into this club on campus. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we want to see where you're at work. Lord, would you give us open eyes? And this morning, as we look at your word, would you open our eyes to uh, how you've worked uh, throughout history? And as we look at the story of Joshua uh, again, Lord, we, we pray that you give us open eyes and new eyes to see. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to uh, continue in Joshua, and I know uh, we've taken a break, and, and there were a couple uh, weeks in March where we looked at it, and I spoke last a little bit about the Joshua story in Numbers as well, uh, to give us some context in Joshua, and so some of you, especially who haven't been looking at it, I just want to give you an overview here. Uh, chapters 1 to 4 is really about entering the land, right? And chapters 5 to 12 is conquering the land, 
sort of the victory part, victory over the enemies. And then chapters 13 to 24 is about inheriting the land, uh, sort of like the aftermath of receiving what God has been promising. Uh, so many times, I think, in serving the Lord or in accelerating mission, we often focus on the vision casting or the rallying the people before the thing takes place, right? Uh, the beginning of mission. And I think often we tend to talk less about the aftermath. Uh, what happens after the plans are done? Uh, I love how the discipleship cycle that we're using in InterVarsity has become commonplace in our work. Um, we don't only care about the beginning now, right? We rallying students, you know, to risky plans or missional experiences. We, we care about the aftermath, helping them reflect, to debrief on what they've learned, on their experiences, debrief on what God has done. And so I think in many ways, Joshua, the passage we're going to look at today, and as we look at Joshua 14 and a little bit of chapter 13, it's really a powerful debrief of the first 12 chapters of Joshua. So that's what we're going to look at. So let's read together um, Joshua chapter 14. Uh, I don't have it on the screen. It's a long passage. Uh, so if you have your Bibles or your phones or if you'd just like to listen, uh, please go ahead and do that. Look at it. Joshua 14. And up 1 through 14. These, now, these are the areas the Israelites received as an inheritance in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar, the priest, Joshua, son of Nun, and heads of the tribal clans of Israel allotted to them. Their inheritances were assigned by lot to the nine and a half tribes, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. Moses has granted the two and a half tribes their inheritance east of the Jordan, but had not granted the Levites an inheritance among the rest. For Joseph's descendants had become two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Levites received no share of the land, but only towns to live in, with pasture lands for their flocks and herds. So the Israelites divided the land just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, and said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me? I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day Moses swore to me, The land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord had promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he has said this to Moses, while Israel moved out about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as, an, as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Now in Joshua chapter 14, as, as Joshua and Caleb reflect back and debrief what God has done, there are three things about servanthood and accelerating mission that I'd like us to see this morning. Uh, the first is we see God's initiative in our blessing. God's initiative in our blessing. 
The first five verses summarize the distribution of the land west of the Jordan for the nine and a half tribes. It's, it's a, kind of a follow-up of the details of the land distribution plan that was in chapter 13. So I want to look briefly at chapter 13 here. Chapter 13, 6, God promises Joshua this western land. So let's, can we read this in unison together? Just, just the top, 13, 6, and 7. Okay. As for all the inhabitants of the mountain regions from Lebanon to Mishrafath Maim, that is, all the Sidonians, I myself will drive them out before the Israelites. Be sure to allocate this land to Israel for an inheritance as I have instructed you, and divide it as inheritance among the nine and a half and half of the tribe of Manasseh. All right. This is God's land, right? And it is God who takes the initiative to drive out the inhabitants. God takes the initiative to allocate the land to the tribes. God initiates every detail of mission here. It's a mission which his sole goal is to bless his people. It's for our blessing. In chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, it's repeated here that the land is received as an inheritance. Right? And an inheritance, as we know, is not something we earn. It's not something to be obtained by sheer will, right? but something that's received. It's actually by the initiator's will, which allows the gift to be given. Right? I was thinking about this today because later this week I have some meetings related to our estate planning folks, our plan giving folks. right? And in many ways, our plan giving department is kind of functions in this way. Like, it's not by our sheer will that we're going to obtain an estate gift, right? No, right? It's by the initiator's will. It's the giver. It's the donor. It's the person who would like to initiate that estate gift, right? We, we just receive it gladly, right? It's by the initiator's will. So in Joshua 14... Uh, we see here God's initiative in our receiving blessing. And sometimes I think in our servanthood, in our work, it's tempting to reverse the two, right? To believe that mission is our initiative and it's to bless God, right? But servanthood is for our blessing. Amen? When we forget this, serving the Lord then and accelerating mission, I think, becomes a heavy weight with endless possibilities that can be overwhelming, with an over-reliance on our strategies. Do you ever feel that way? A heavy weight? As we saw in the video, it's God's initiative that led to our planting. Uh, there was a missional community on that campus already. Uh, Elijah was a student president. He had been praying for someone to help them. Uh, and that person turned out to be an answer prayer was, was Chizu. If the gospel was to be advanced, it would be because of God's initiative, not ours. God had already been preparing persons of peace there. God had already been sowing seeds. One of the things I love about our planting movement in InterVarsity is we're always looking out for where God is already at work. Right? We spy out the land, uh, and I'm convinced that this is one of the most single important disciplines in our ministry, that we look for God's initiative. Uh, I remember my friend Howie Malash in St. Louis. He would spy out the land every time we did some planting. And one of his first spying out the land trips was to Harris Stowe State University. It's an HBCU school in St. Louis. 
And he was praying and seeing where God's at work. And he said, God, just show me where the doors are open. And he's walking around campus. And suddenly he sees this building and the door is wide open. <laughs> so he says, okay, maybe I'm supposed to go through it. So he goes through it and it's like the athletic department or something, right? And he ends up talking to some athletic administrators and he shares about why he's visiting campus and praying for maybe some, you know, Christian work to start sometime. And the administrator says, you know, uh, we've actually uh, been praying that something like this would start at our, on our campus, but we don't have a group like that, like in a varsity. And uh, the administrator uh, takes Howie on sort of a mini tour, and they go through another open door. Howie, Howie knows another open door to the athletic fields, I guess, somewhere around there. And so they go through this door, and they end up in the athletic fields, and he meets like an athletic director or something, and they have another divine kind of encounter and appointment. God was already at work at Harris Stowe. Uh, I love hearing about um, the New England region takes this annual bus tour uh, where they, uh, they bring their staff and they go on a bus tour of campuses where university is currently not at to see where God is at work. And they just walk the campus and look for signs of where is God at work already, where is God's initiative leading them. They spy out just many campuses on a bus tour and they just go around. It's an annual trip. Staff now regularly take prayer walks to unreached corners of their campuses around arts departments, athletic fields, offices of faculty and administrators to discern where God is at work. Uh, one of the highlights I had uh, earlier this year was going with the cabinet on a walk around the UW campus, meeting staff, and they were taking us around and hearing about where is God already at work on campus? Where do we believe God might bring us to eventually as well? At the NSC, I love how we're looking for God's initiative and a picture of where he's at work in the, in, even in our ministries that support the field. We're looking at where is God at work. Um, I love how we collaborate with sister organizations and, and to explore together. There's a group from other organizations here of leadership development professionals, too, and many of you are involved with other peer groups where we're learning together where do we sense that God's at work. I met with the presidents of our six other, five other campus ministry organizations last month. And we were talking about where do we sense God is moving on our campuses? What should we be paying attention to? When we're mindful of God's initiative and our blessing, it then changes the way we make decisions in ministry. Uh, I was, uh, when I was a regional director, uh, we were looking at um, the state of Nebraska. And I remember distinctly one day, I was uh, in the Des Moines airport, and um, it was more out of my initiative or my sense of planning. I wrote myself a, a note on a napkin, no Nebraska, okay, no Nebraska. It was just, we, there was just so much going on in the region. We had just planted work in Kansas and planted another area in Missouri, and, you know, and we were just getting started, and I said, you know, I've got to learn the discipline of saying no, so I wrote on a napkin, no Nebraska, right? Shortly after I wrote that napkin, while I was still at the airport, uh, my area director, uh, John Hebrink at the time, uh, called me and he, he said, uh, Tom, uh, there's a staff that just contacted me, uh, her name is Rachel, and, and she just told me that uh, she'd like to move to Nebraska. <laughs> and can we do that? And I, so I tell John, I'm like, uh, John, I just wrote on this napkin, no Nebraska, you know, <laughs> so, you know, that's our plan, no Nebraska. Uh, and so we thought about it, and I said, you know, I don't, I don't know, I have some doubts, and, you know, I'm not sure if we should go next year. And if she wants to go there for other reasons, you know, that, that's fine. Well, then a few days later, I got a call from Eric and Stacey Rafferty, 
from Cal who were in California at the time. I had given a talk in their uh, LA division calling them to, to reach kind of unreached campuses that are far away, and so they took me up on the offer and actually called me and said, can we move to Nebraska uh, from California? And so Eric had family in Omaha, and they said, so we'd like to go there next year. Can we do university there? And I was like, oh, I don't know, the napkin. You know, it said, no, Nebraska, you know, what do I do? And then that same day, I get an email from a, a faculty advisor uh, named Rene Padilla, and he was, a, he was a faculty and, not advisor, a faculty and a dean at Creighton University. And he said, Tom, you know, my wife and I, we've been praying for 15 years for university to come on campus here. You know, we heard you're new, you're new to regional director. Are you guys going to come to Creighton in Omaha, Nebraska, you know? <laughs> So I got the hint, and, and we went. Um, it's God's initiative and our blessing. Where is God already at work in your department or area of ministry? What are you seeing? Have you stopped recently to debrief your work projects to see where he is taking initiative? Accelerating mission is pointing to God's initiative and then coming alongside. How can you come alongside where you see God at work? The second thing we see in Joshua 14 is that servanthood and accelerating mission is about God's perspective in our perseverance. So God's perspective in our perseverance. Uh, Caleb is, is one of my favorite characters. He's 85 years old in this passage, right? still passionate and persevering as ever. Uh, last month, I shared a little bit about Caleb spying out the land in Numbers 13 and 14, uh, when he was the only one along with Joshua that had God's perspective. Well, in verse 10 here, uh, it's now 45 years later. He still has not received the land. Hebron is still fortified. It's occupied by the Anakites. And after 45 years of waiting and persevering, Caleb is still ready to take on this difficult mission. Let's look at it again. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he had said this to Moses, while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out, just as he said. Caleb can't stand the fact that they haven't gone in yet. And I believe that one of Caleb's biggest challenges is waiting for God's timing. Going through years of difficult situations before seeing God's words, his promises, fulfilled. Going through years of following the Lord wholeheartedly, being faithful without seeing the fruit he had hoped for. How good are we at waiting. Uh, I'm a, on the Myers-Briggs, I'm a high J and a maximizer. I'm horrible at waiting. Okay, waiting in line for something, waiting at a traffic light, waiting for a delayed flight to depart. Uh, in leadership, I'm especially horrible at waiting for the fulfillment of a decision that's already been made, right? Or the execution of a task I've delegated. Sorry for the people who work closely with me. Uh, <laughs> What is something that you're waiting for? Maybe it's a turnaround in a flourish situation, or a coworker relationship situation, or a turnaround in a spiritual situation of a friend or a family member. 
A funding situation that you've been praying for breakthrough in? What are you waiting for? Sometimes perseverance is not so much about waiting for something. It's also enduring criticism or critique. That's also perseverance. I can imagine Caleb coming back with the minority opinion after spying out the land and the other ten spies calling him crazy or unrealistic. I mean, doesn't Caleb know how much we're struggling here and how we're not equipped to take on the land? I can imagine 45 years later, others critiquing Caleb. You know, if God hasn't given us this land in 45 years, what makes you think he'll do it now? Caleb's out of touch with reality on the ground. I know that we probably could never imagine this in a university, but sometimes criticism can happen. Sometimes people have strong opinions about our work, right, and have critique. Some of it's good, definitely. Ministry requires persevering through false narratives as well, through critique and criticism. Uh, as a first-year staff worker within a varsity, uh, I was uh, part of planting the first Asian-American chapter we had across the country that came from another university chapter, and so we planted it. There was lots of backlash. Lots of critique. I mean, Tom, is, is it biblical? Are we allowed to do that? You know, how could we do such a thing? Plant an Asian-specific chapter. And even internally, students would get on my case. And even among staff across the country, different parts of the country, how could you do that? It meant persevering through that. As their banner director, I faced... False narratives across mission organizations around the country saying that InterVarsity no longer cared about global missions. Or the narrative that Urbana no longer cared about the proclamation of the gospel. The one truth of every Urbana, something you can always count on, is you will without a doubt receive criticism. <laughs> uh, as president, I've also had some experiences <laughs> with criticism and some false narratives. I've gotten a lot of phone calls, Facebook messages, campaigns. I've changed.org petitions. Through it all, I kept asking the question, Lord, what is your perspective in all of this? Help me to see your perspective. For Caleb's leadership and for ours, we're invited to persevere and see God's perspective, to see how even difficult situations like Hebron serve to advance the gospel. Uh, today, I think we see examples of this in the global church as well, where the most difficult trials serve to advance the gospel. Uh, one of my favorite pictures to show is uh, the uh, last Urbana. This is a Chinese delegation that came to Urbana 15, and they, they, came, they come often to different Urbanas. But this one was particularly fun for me because these folks in particular, um, they also visited our office later on. Uh, they're planning the future Chinese Urbana. Like, they want to start Urbana there one day. Uh, and so they come to Urbana, and, uh, and I remember asking them, I'm sure a lot of people ask them, you know, how can we pray for you? You know, and we know it's hard there in China, everything, you know, how can we pray for you? And the one thing they said was interesting, it says, well, don't pray for the persecution to stop. That's the one thing not to pray for. Pray for the gospel to be advanced. Pray for ministry to move forward. Don't assume necessarily, right, that it means removing persecution. Don't pray for the, that the persecution stops. 
last week on Palm Sunday, we all heard about the horrible terrorist attack with suicide bombers attacking two churches in Cairo. And this picture uh, came from Ramez Atala. I also got a letter from him. Ramez is a former Urbana speaker, honorary president of the IFES, and he serves as the uh, uh, Bible Society uh, secretary at, in Egypt. He wrote this. He said, altogether, 46 people went from celebrating by faith to celebrating by sight, meeting their Savior face to face. Many more were wounded. The funerals were a mixture of wailing and rejoicing, as one bishop explained. True, we love martyrdom, but we also love life. God created us on earth to live, not die. The fact that we accept death doesn't mean that our blood is cheap. It doesn't mean that it doesn't matter to us. But we witness for Christ, whether by our lives or by our transition to heaven. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Where is your Hebron where you're committing to perseverance? What are difficult situations where you need to see God's perspective? Uh, this fall, uh, just, I had an uh, uh, encouraging time actually meeting with some leaders in L.A. I uh, met with Brian Chung, who's at uh, University of Southern California. This is during our... Um, human sexuality media crisis especially. So the media stuff was going around and it was tough. It's a school that where we might have thought our theological position or some of the media issues would bring about difficulty or marginalization on campus. But he shared with me last fall we actually saw more people make first-time decisions for Christ than ever before at USC. And I was amazed. And then he went on to say this cha the chapter has actually grown this year and is adding more small groups than they've ever seen in a decade there at USC. As we see challenges in our North American context, in our political climate, our campus climate, how can we become staff who persevere in faith and in mission? How can we develop Caleb-like students and faculty who persevere, especially in the face of complex challenges on campus today? God's perspective and our perseverance. A third area I'd like us to look at this morning is God's promises in our obedience. God's promises in our obedience. Caleb needed to focus on the long view, right? 45 years later, rather than the immediate, trusting that God would fulfill his promises. Faith focuses on the long term, the long view, and not on the immediate. Caleb knew that God was faithful to his promises, and he appeals to God's promises. Actually, in verses 10 to 12, he appeals to those promises. They're so reliable, it makes sense to trust him. And in Joshua 21, uh, God finally fulfills them. Uh, can we read this together? This is Joshua 21, verses 43 and then 45. Okay? So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors. They took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Everyone was fulfilled. Everyone was fulfilled. The story of the book of Joshua is that God promises the land, but God's people must possess it. There is obedient action required. Caleb knew that God would help him, but he must be ready for the challenges ahead. In Caleb's case, like in Joshua 1, it required courageous action. 
Right? And so, too, in our mission, it's God's work in ours. Uh, about a decade ago, I, I believe that God had given me a promise, and it was to go serve in the central region. Uh, I had this image of it being a harvest time, just plentiful, and, you know, there's a lot of farmland out there, and so I thought the image worked, you know. Uh, and after uh, seven years there in that region prior to my coming, without a regional director and it was in decline, I believed that God was changing the seasons. Um, I believe that, here's the central region, so you can see it, uh, that God was changing the seasons, but holding on to God's promises wasn't easy. Um, I remember one, one area director came and challenged me, and he said, how do you know, Tom, if it's changing seasons, how do you know it's not winter time? Right? Why is it summertime? Why is it, or why is it harvest time? Maybe it's fall. Another person, another leader said, Tom, to be honest, I'm just a bit cynical. We've tried strategic plans before, and it hasn't worked. Well, in my first 18 months as a regional director, I officially dropped the region to its lowest ever number of chapters, 14, uh, its lowest number of students, and the lowest numbers of staff they've had in a long time, 23 staff it came down to. But during those 18 months, our regional leadership team rallied together and believed in the promise of it being a harvest, so much so that we formed a 2020 vision that in 12 years we believed that God was going to plant 50 chapters 500 cell groups, and one overseas movement. Trusting in God's promise meant obedient action. We lean into Caleb-like example of courage and ruthless focus on engaging in the land that God had promised. It didn't mean that Caleb was doing more, but perhaps cutting what didn't help with engaging the land. Obedient action meant intentional strategies were needed. Strategic planning was needed. Obedient action also meant, meant admitting that I couldn't do it myself. I couldn't do it myself. Inviting others to action. Uh, in, in chapter 15, actually, of Joshua, Caleb, uh, after Caleb drives out three Anakites and he takes Hebron, so he finally takes Hebron, he realizes he needs help with another piece of land called uh, Kiriath Zephyr. And he couldn't get to it. And so he ends up inviting and partnering with Othniel, who eventually takes Kiriath Zephyr. So you look at that, that's in chapter 15. One of my biggest joys was realizing that the central region, my region, couldn't do it all. We couldn't do it all. If we were going to realize God's promise in this 2020 vision, it would require collaborating with others outside the region. I remember Tim Peterson, who was the divisional director here in Wisconsin, him saying, Tom, come, come to my division and share your vision. Anyone who wants to go from Wisconsin to your region, I would bless them. Go, you know, I would send them. I remember the New England region, you know, that does the bus tours. They started sharing their best practices among planters, and we'd have these collaborative consultations where we'd share best practices. We needed that. I remember asking Jim Lundgren to help invest in my young leaders. I said, I have these, like, young leaders who are in their third to fifth year on staff. They're so key to the future of the region. Would you come? And he drove from Madison to uh, somewhere, I think it was in Iowa, um, uh, and uh, spent some time with them. <laughs> Today, that promise of harvest and that 2020 vision actually has become reality. That region has accomplished that vision in 2017, three years early, under the leadership of John Heaprank, who's now a vice president of the central area of the country, and the obedient actions of so many staff, not just in the central region, but collaborating regions. 
and staff here in the NSC that supported that. God is good, amen? amen? What is the promise that God has given to you? What obedient action or courageous action is required on our part? Are there partners, even outside your team or outside your department, are there partners who can be invited to act with us? Twenty seventeen is a significant year for us. And we're both preparing to enter into a new land, a new season, rallying staff, we're starting to make plans, starting to cast some vision. We're also at the end of a strategic plan, receiving what God has promised, inheriting the land. We've tried to do some celebrating as well. May we remember God's initiative in our blessing, God's perspective in our call to persevere, and God's promises and the obedient actions still being called for. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for what we see you doing, your initiative on campuses across the country. We thank you for what you've done. We look back at even the last five years of the strategic plan and all that's happened here at the NSC uh, in these years. And we thank you. We celebrate. We look back and we see the fulfillment of many promises, Lord. We give you praise. We stop and we thank you. And Lord, we pray now as we learn from that, as we look to the future, may we continue to see where you are at work. May we stop and debrief and see where you are at work in our current reality, in our current projects, in our current teams. May we learn from that, and may we come alongside you, Lord. Lord, we pray that you give us wisdom for the obedient actions still being called for. Where you want to lead us next? What are those next steps of faithful obedience? We want to follow you wholeheartedly, Lord, and we declare that today. Lord, thank you for the privilege of serving you, Lord. Thank you that you want to bless us, that you want to bless us in mission, and you are the one leading us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.